Welcome to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit SharonChurch.com. We hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. We, we believe this morning, and for those of us that we, we just need you to help us with our unbelief. Give us evidence to believe that you are who you say you are and you do what you say you will do. We're desperate for your presence. We're desperate for your power this morning. We believe there's nothing you can't do. So today, why not right now? Why not now? Why not now, God? Would Would you save someone? Would you call them home? Would you rescue them from the powers of darkness and call them into the power of your glorious light? Why not now? Why not right now that you would call them home? for the child who has, has, has run away, the child who is far from you, why not now? Why not now a text? Why not now a call? Why not now bring them home? Father, for the person who's struggling and hurting in the hospital, God, we believe you can heal. We believe you are the great physician. These aren't just words we say and things we've read about times long ago. We believe it's now and today and you can. Why not now? for the marriage this morning that's falling apart. This is, they're gonna give it one more shot today. This is it. Ah, we believe you can restore it. Believe you can bring them together. Ah, you're better, you're better, you're just better. Oh, we love you, we believe in you. May that faith lead us in the study of your word this morning. Inspire us, challenge us, remind us who you are in a way that would impress so deeply upon our soul that we would never forget it. Draw us back to you. How we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We're gonna continue this morning, finish our series through Acts chapter two. So if you grab your Bibles, go ahead and go to Acts chapter two. And there's something that happens for us when the music stops. It's like we um, kind of lose some energy and lose some intensity. This is, gonna, this is important this morning, so we're gonna study it with that same worshipful attitude this morning. Acts chapter two, finishing our series called Welcome Home with the four pillars of the early church. And we said that the early church devoted themselves. They were continually continuing in the apostles' teaching, which was the teaching of the apostles, which is based on the teachings of Jesus, which is based on the teachings of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's consistent throughout generations. I don't, any pastor, anyone who teaches the Bible has no authority outside of what uh, the apostles have taught and Jesus had taught over the, what the prophets had taught. We get to teach what they've taught. There's nothing new under the sun. And then they devote themselves to the fellowship. So they've got teaching so now you gotta devote them, themselves to actually getting along with each other. And we've said that the way that we get along is realizing we have everything in common at the foot of the cross. We may have different preferences in how we sin, but the fact that we sin is universal for every single one of us. And we find um, unity in the power of Jesus at the cross. And then the breaking of bread last week was just, we looked at communion based on the ancient tradition of Passover. And the idea there that it's the gospel is our central story. We have to keep coming back to that. The Israelites came back to the story of the exodus from slavery in Egypt to remind them of who they are and who God is. We have the same exodus story. We've been set free from the powers of sin and death. We have to go back to that uh, to find community, to find uh, koinonia or fellowship. And so this morning, I'm gonna teach on prayer. And so immediately you feel guilty because I'm gonna teach on prayer. 
And whenever someone teaches on prayer, you walk out feeling like, oh, my prayer life is awful. I should do better at it. I'm, I'm gonna go get a prayer journal. And then you go and buy a prayer journal. And then in two weeks, you forget that you had a prayer journal or you devote, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wake up at five tomorrow morning. I'm gonna spend two and a half hours. In, no, you're not. You're not going to. You're not. So I don't want you to feel guilty. Another thing is I don't want you to think I'm standing up here as someone who has figured out prayer. I have not figured out prayer. It is a constant battle and a war for me to be consistent in prayer because I am way too self-reliant. It's more efficient for me just to do it than to ask someone else to do it, and that includes God. So I'm not that person. I'm learning along with you. This has been convicting for me and powerful for me this week in, in pretty profound ways. I'm not an expert. You're not an expert. Let's just study together this morning. We're gonna depend on the grace of God. This idea here of prayer in Acts chapter two is actually more centered around corporate or church-wide prayer. It has elements of the individual prayer life because the church is made up of individuals. And when we gather, it should naturally be an overflow of what we are throughout the week. So um, know that, but know that this morning we're gonna teach towards church prayer, a church of prayer. This church was devoted to the prayers. Now the prayers for them were old Jewish prayers and prayer times and you read a couple chapters later that Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer. They were devoted to prayer in a number of different ways. But we're gonna focus this morning on, on prayer corporately as a church. What we're gonna see is that everything builds to this from Acts chapter 242. If we start with the apostles' teaching, um, that's gonna lead us to some experiences that need explanation and that draws people in. And when people are drawn in, we find ourselves around people that we aren't necessarily a lot like nor do we like them. And we need to figure out then fellowship. So once you have teaching and fellowship, from fellowship you go to communion, the Lord's uh, the breaking of the bread, because it's that point then we have to be drawn back to, hey, this person is annoying me to death. I don't like what that person is about. I don't like what that person is wearing. I'm gonna need to be drawn back to the gospel of Jesus. We're gonna need to be centered back on that. And once that happens, then we can pray. Prayer is founded on the word of God, found on the word of God, on the community of people, and on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is prayer. Anything outside of that is just hopeful chance we make to some unknown God. But prayer is founded on what we know of God in unity together based on and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question then is, is why don't we pray as much as we should? Or is there a time, should we pray more? Is there a certain amount of times that we should pray? Well, I, I, don't, I don't wanna deal so much with the practicalities this morning because I think there are a number of ways to pray. I wanna talk about maybe why we don't pray. I want the, the word of God to inspire us to pray. I think there's reasons we don't pray. We don't think it's important. We don't know when we're going to, how we're gonna build a schedule around that. It feels boring. It feels monotonous. It feels like we could do more things than we should just talk about them. Maybe we don't actually have a desire to pray. Why would we want to pray? And some of us, maybe it's just that we don't know how to. But I, I think this is our number one reason. I think we don't pray because we overestimate ourselves while we underestimate God. The reason we don't pray is because we overestimate what we can accomplish and we underestimate what God can accomplish. And some of that is based on our history, our own personal experience of, well, I prayed and God didn't. Well, I asked God to when he didn't. So I'm just gonna take care of it myself. And listen, that's fair. That's fair. But I would challenge you on then what you know about God and is he who he says he is. But we don't pray because we overestimate ourselves while we underestimate God. 
which reminds me of the 2015 Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors in 2015 won the national uh, the NBA championship, um, kind of came out of nowhere and won the championship. 2016, they win 73 games, go 73 and nine, go into the playoffs. Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, they go into the playoffs, they get to the Western Conference Finals and they're down three games to one. They had lost nine games in the entire season and now they've lost a third of that to one team in a best of seven series, uh, Kevin Durant's Oklahoma City Thunder. They're down three games to one and then they put out this miraculous comeback and they come back and win. Steph hits a shot from like three and a half football fields away. They end up winning the game. Game seven, they win. Steph Curry does this awkwardly on camera, pulls his shorts up in a weird way. It was just, it was weird for all of us. That's the Western Conference Finals. So from there now, they get to go into the, the championship round, right? The finals against LeBron James, who was like the third or fourth best basketball player of all time. <laughs> Sorry if that offends you. Uh, but they play against LeBron James. And here's what happens. The Golden State Warriors go up three games to one on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And because they've overestimated themselves, they've won 73 games. They just came back from three games to one. They just need to win one more. They're gonna be fine. Game four, Draymond Green goes Draymond Green on LeBron James and gets a technical and gets kicked out for the next game. The Cavaliers go on to win game five, which makes it a three to two series. The Cavaliers go on to win game six, which makes it a three to three series. And then the Cavaliers go on to win game seven, thanks to LeBron James's chase down block on Andre Iguodala's layup late in the game. And they have come back from a three to one deficit and they have beat the Golden State Warriors who is supposed to be the best team of all time. And now the Warriors are second place instead of first place. So they've overestimated themselves saying, oh, we're, we're fine. We're up three games to one. Only, only we have come back from three to one. No one else can do that. But look, someone else does. And then it's interesting a few months later, they go out and they sign a guy by the name of Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant of the Oklahoma City Thunder, perennial MVP candidate, one of the best players of all time. The 73-win Warriors go out and sign Kevin Durant and become hated by everyone else in the world at this time. Kevin Durant in an interview said, I would have never signed with them if they had won the championship in 2016 against the Cavaliers. But after that loss against LeBron James and the Cavaliers, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Jamon Green set up a meeting with Kevin Durant to convince him to come sign onto their team. Why? What happened? They realized they were vulnerable and they needed something better than what they had to help them move forward. Warriors win the championship the next year and the next year and it's history. Kevin Durant is now a New Jersey net because Kevin Durant does Kevin Durant things. That's, that's what he is now. But it's interesting, the Warriors were very confident in being the Warriors until they suffered a defeat. They had accomplished great things on their own. Just, I mean, the, the three core players of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green had accomplished amazing record-setting things. But when faced with defeat, they realized they didn't have enough within themselves. They needed something else. So here's my story when it comes to me and my prayer life. I didn't have a great prayer life. I, I didn't pray much at all. I mean, I did because of what good Christian people do. And I, I prayed, and I prayed for people and I prayed for meals and I, um, except for Chick-fil-A, it's already been blessed so I don't have to do that. But everything else you have to pray for. Um, <clears throat> and, then, and then over the past couple of years, the enemy laid a great defeat in my life. I dropped my guard and I was defeated by the enemy. And it was at that point I realized I need help. 
there's an actual war going on. These aren't games. Like these are is a war for my soul, for my marriage, and for my family and my kids. And I can't, I can't just think I can do it by shooting threes. And for some of us this morning, the reason why we are devoted to prayer is because we've experienced times when we weren't devoted to prayer and we saw what happened. And in the Lord's grace, he allowed tragedy and defeat to happen, which then pushed us back to him. I think we don't pray because we overestimate what we can accomplish without God. There's coming a day when you will be faced with the reality that there's nothing you can accomplish without God. I don't care how great your family uh, devotions are and how much you study the Bible and, and how many college degrees you have and what you know about this and that. At some point, what's coming, if you're not dependent upon God, there's coming an enemy who will defeat you because you cannot withstand that enemy without the power of God. So here's my plea for us this morning that we would find ourselves here crying to the power of God before we have to suffer defeat. So in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is beginning his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. You can turn there to Mark 11. Jesus is uh, 33 and a half years old, three and a half years or so of ministry, has healed people, has raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, He's fed thousands of people, probably more than once. He's just, he's been amazing. He's taught brilliantly. He has changed the world and the calendar as we know it. But he's kind of under the radar. People don't know a whole lot about him except for a few select groups of people. And so Jesus, like a good Jewish man, finds himself coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he comes in on what we now know as Palm Sunday. And now he has kind of flipped this switch to now he's letting everybody know who he is. And he comes triumphantly in, fulfilling a number of prophecies. He rides a donkey, walking on palm fronds and coats, which is an Old Testament prophecy. Now he's fulfilling. But I want to look at verse 1. This is important for us as we move forward. It says in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, Now when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany. And this is why when you read Scripture, Every word is important. Everything matters. And I don't mean that to intimidate you. I just mean that you're always going to find something you didn't know as you study and read. Even the locations matter. Okay? So they're on their way to Jerusalem. But to get to Jerusalem, they'll pass through Bethany and then through Bethpage. And they have friends in Bethany, Lazarus. They're going to find friends in Bethany. But there's Bethpage. So these two places are, are interesting for us. Bethany literally means the house of figs. The house of figs, that prefix B-E-T means house of or house. It's the house of figs. So think about that. House of figs is gonna be important. Bethpage is a smaller town just outside of Bethany and it means the house of the early fig or house of the unripe fig. It's two places in this area is well known for their produce of a fruit called fig. Fig and fig trees. These two areas. This is important for us moving forward. So Jesus does his triumphal entry. He walks in. Uh, people are screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, our God saves. And then they leave and they go back out, out of town um, to Bethany. Let's go to verse 12. Mark tells it this way. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. So again, we're in the house of figs. But they're coming from Bethany they're going through Beth Page to get there. So Matthew would say it's in Beth Page this happens. He sees a fig tree in leaf, meaning that it's, there's leaves that have now shown up on it. It's that season. And Jesus went to see if he could find anything on it. 
And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. Okay, that's important. It's not the season for figs, but there are leaves on the tree. The way that fig trees grow is that they would first grow fruit and leaves then would tell you that the fruit was ready on the tree. Leaves are an indication of fruit. Now it says it's not the season for figs. Well, it's not for most, place, most places. But what does Beth Page mean? What does it mean? House of the early fig. So it is season. It is time. They are unique. It is time for them to bear fruit. And even if it wasn't, the fig tree looks like it has fruit on it. It has leaves, which means there must be fruit. But Jesus doesn't find any fruit. But we know Jesus. He's so tender and compassionate. I mean, he just, he loves, he holds lambs all the time when he walks. Those are the pictures that I've seen of him with his blonde hair holding a lamb. Look what Jesus does here in verse 14. And Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Wow, Jesus, what did this tree do to you? Seems like you got a problem with the fig tree. Do we need to talk about it? Again, Jesus, this is a different week for him. And humanly speaking, we're like, well, yeah, it's stressful. He's going into the town. He's gonna be crucified. He knows what's coming. I'm sure he's on edge, right? Like anytime you know something's coming, if it's a doctor's appointment or something that's coming later that week, you're you're on edge by Monday. Even though it's not gonna happen until Friday, you're on edge by Monday. But this is different than that. Jesus is very in control of his emotions. This is intentional. This flips, something has flipped, but it's intentional. But the disciples heard it. But here's what's important for us. Jesus was not upset that the, fruit, that the tree didn't have fruit. The lack of fruit wasn't the problem. It was the pretense of the leaves. In other words, it looked like it had, should have uh, figs on it, fruit, but it didn't. This fig tree was a hypocrite. It had all the trappings of fruit, but there was no fruit to be found. The problem wasn't that Jesus was hungry and came to a fig tree without leaves and there weren't any figs on it. The problem is Jesus was hungry and he, he saw something that should give him sustenance that proclaimed we have what you need and yet when he got there, there was nothing under the leaves. That's the problem with the fig tree. Verse 15, when they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus, you're gonna have to get a hold of yourself. Like this is escalating quickly. You curse a tree, now you're destroying property in the temple. Matthew tells us he makes a whip out of cords that he found. Like this isn't lamb carrying, let the children come to me, sweet Jesus. There's something happening. But again, this is not emotional. This isn't irrational. There's something bigger happening. So the way, the way Mark tells stories a lot of times in his gospel is that he will take stories and he will split one or two apart and then put a third one in the middle. And whatever's in the middle is the point. Everything else kind of tells another version of the story of what's in the middle. What's in the middle of Matthew chapter 11, or Mark chapter 11 is this story in the temple. Jesus comes into the temple, he sees people selling and buying, and then he flips over tables um, and flips over chairs of those selling pigeons, or some of your translations might say doves, okay? So I'm gonna take us back to understand what's happening in the temple. We have a picture here of, of this temple. It's the second, uh, the second temple, the first temple destroyed in the Old Testament. This is, this is the second temple. And so what you've got here is you've got what's called the temple mounts, so it's up high, and then you've got all the walls around the temple. 
in the middle, you see the long rectangular walls. That's where now you're gonna have another inner courtyard. Inside of that, you see the tall building. That is where you would find the Holy of Holies and the holy place. Inside of that building is where there's a veil, 12 to 18 inches thick, a curtain that would hang from top to bottom to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. Just inside of that curtain is where you'd find the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where sacrifices were made. Only the high priest can make his way into there. Everybody else had to stay outside. But even outside of that, in that the inner courtyard was only where Jews could be. Those who believed in the one true God could be in that inner courtyard. In the outer courtyard, everyone was welcome. Because back in the Old Testament, when they were building the temple, God said he wanted his temple to be a temple for all nations. So in the outer courtyard, the Gentiles can come and associate. Now, what's important for us is up on your left, up on the wall there, that kind of brownish red covered portico or porch is what's called Solomon's Porch. You'll read about it later in Acts in Solomon's Porch. Um, there's Peter and John heal a lame man outside the temple and they come inside and there's dancing in Solomon's porch. You can read all about Solomon's porch in the Old Testament. We just don't have time. But Solomon's porch uh, was a place devoted for worship and for prayer. High priest Caiaphas, who is responsible for the temple at this time, and he's the one who would wanna have Jesus crucified. We know Caiaphas from our passion plays. Caiaphas, at some point in his leadership, decided that he would take currency exchange from the, from the outer courts, not the outer courts, from the marketplace, from the city, if you look at the top, from the town, he would take currency exchange and that business from there and he would move it inside of the temple up to Solomon's porch. Currency exchange is the same thing that we have now. If you travel to another country, you have to exchange currency. So our dollar doesn't, doesn't uh, isn't the same value as, as another form of money in another country. So you have to exchange that currency. It's kind of the first place you stop when you get off of the plane at the airport. You stop to exchange currency. It's the same thing here. But in Jerusalem, every year and every time there's a feast, you have thousands of people coming from all over that would have to exchange their currency to make purchases. What else they'd have to do is they're not gonna travel hundreds of miles with their sacrificial lamb or with their goat or with a pigeon. They're gonna wanna buy that when they get there but they're gonna need money. So they come to get an exchange to exchange their currency. To this day, Jerusalem has one of the highest exchange rates in the world. But Caiaphas decided, hey, that's, that's not gonna work out there. What if we brought that into the temple and we leveraged currency exchange for the good of the temple? What he means is, what if we take advantage of people not outside of our gates, but inside of our gates? So he brings the world from the world into the church, if you pick up what I'm saying. He takes the government role, he takes political role, he takes financial gain from the world, and now he moves it into the temple and he places it at Solomon's porch. People would travel and want to offer, they needed to offer sacrifices. They had a whole system set up in the temple. You could exchange your money here the temple would make money and then you would spend that money on a pigeon or a goat or a lamb and the temple then would get that money as well. I mean, it sounds like good stewardship to a lot of us. Like it just sounds like, you know, it's really cold in here. So we thought we might just sell sharing blankets out there and say, hey, we know it's cold. We have blankets for sale. So Jesus sees the remodeling of the temple and he is not happy with what's happened. Now pigeons or doves are the sacrifice of the poor person. Two turtle doves would be the sacrifice of Mary and Joseph. A dove 
is not for the wealthy, but for the impoverished, for the poor. And what Jesus sees is, you know who's being taken advantage of in this system? Those on the margins. Those who can't do anything else, but it's the only thing they have. What else are they gonna do? They wanna be close to God, but they have to offer the sacrifice, but the sacrifice costs so much money because of the system they have, but what else are they gonna do? Because now all the preachers are saying, no, 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 you gotta sacrifice, you gotta be close to God. They're taking advantage of the situation. And Jesus sees what's happened and he is not thrilled and he flips over tables and curses the money changers. In Matthew, um, Jesus says that he makes, a, or Matthew says that Jesus makes a whip out of cords and whips people and people begin running from him, but people start running to him. You know who runs to him? The blind and the lame come running to him to be healed. You know who else runs to him? Children screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, our God saves. It's interesting that when Jesus begins to wreak havoc in the religious system, it's the religious leaders who run from him and those who are broken who run to him. Look at verse 16. Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and was saying to them, well, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So now Jesus is speaking to Jewish religious leaders who know the Old Testament prophets. And what he does is he quotes two Old Testament prophets, which is a pretty sweet move that he makes here. But here's what he quotes. And so you can write this down. Isaiah 56, seven, Isaiah, and 50, Isaiah 56, the prophet, the Lord is speaking through him about the temple. And he says, I want my temple to be a house of prayer for all the nations. I want the Gentiles to be able to come to the house of prayer that they might receive healing and salvation through, um, through the sacrifice. This is the house of prayer. He calls it the house of prayer in Isaiah. In Jeremiah chapter seven, verses one through 11, is this whole passage and it ends with um, God telling Jeremiah, hey, listen, they're gonna turn my temple into a den of robbers. And I think it's in verse three or four, um, God says to Jeremiah, you're gonna go to my temple and you're gonna say, what is this place? And they're gonna say, it's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God says, don't believe them, it's not that anymore. They've turned it into a den of robbers. Again, we've got the fig tree, but this is the central story. We'll come back to that fig tree here in a second. So in verse 18, Jesus says this, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. Why? Because they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It's interesting who gets offended by Jesus and who is drawn to him. So I wanna make a statement and I hope it, it carries us this morning. There is no hypocrisy quite like a prayerless church. Notice what Jesus says. This was supposed to be my house, a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves or a den of robbers. This should have been the place that we commune together to pray to the Lord, but instead it's a place where all the thieves come to hang out and decide how they're gonna take advantage of people, what their next move is. They talk strategy. This was supposed to be about talking through the spirit. And listen, there is no hypocrisy quite like a church without prayer. And I will say this to you. Your church, my church, our church has a group of men who are prayerful men leading this church. Our elders, the first time I met with the elders, I go into the room and <laughs> Daryl just says, you guys wanna pray? I'm like, sure, we'll pray. And I bow my heads. And then they start moving chairs and start kneeling down on their knees on chairs. Chairs are moving all over the place and they just kneel down. And we spend 20 minutes in prayer to the Lord before a meeting, an elders meeting. Like 
I want you to know that the elders of this church are prayerful men. This church is not prayerless. It would be a great hypocrisy if we were. I'm gonna tell you why here in a second. Verse 20. Now this is the next day, so they leave, and now they're gonna come back into Jerusalem, and they're gonna pass by. Verse 20. As they passed by, Jesus and the disciples, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. I don't know what he thought was gonna happen. Look, you did it. Good job. And Jesus answered them, and this is what he says, interestingly, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Now you've probably heard these verses before, haven't you? You've heard these verses like 22 through 25 about if you just have faith, you can move mountains. That's, that's what we hear. Yes, sure, I'll, I'll ascribe to that. But I think we're missing the context of what's happening. You've got a fig tree that Mark has placed at the beginning and the end of this account. And right in the middle is a temple, the temple. So here's what I believe is happening. I think Jesus is exposing the temple as the fig tree. That's what I think is happening. If you look at the language of prayer all throughout and faith, here's what I think is happening. Jesus is upset with the temple in the same way he was upset with the fig tree. It had all the trappings of power, but when he got there, there was no power to be found. It had all the leaves around it, and yet there was no fruit in the temple, just like the fig tree. It looked like it should have fruit. It had temple leaves, leaves of sacrifices that they would make regularly. It had religious activity. They were busy doing what seemed to be godly things. They were helping the poor by making it more efficient for them. They seemed to have gifted leadership. They were being, seemed to be good stewards of what God had given them. They, they had all the trappings of the temple and yet no fruit to prove it. And the sad commentary is this that the church, the Christian church in America today probably is no different. We have all the trappings, all the leaves, and yet no fruit to prove it. If you look around uh, the state of Christianity in America today, I think the question you have to beg is, where's the power? Where's the power gone? Because it sure seems like we have to manipulate people into coming to church or following Jesus. Where has the power gone? We have to make the music better, make the lights better, make the air conditioning better, and make the seats better, and make the building look cool. But where's the power gone? Churches today, we, we might be busy with religious things, but I'm not so sure we're busy following Jesus. We have religious activity. We are fighting for social justice. It's become preeminent. We, are, we seem to have Bible studies. We have good worship. We're even active on social media. Like, well, I, what are we doing wrong? Paul, in his letter to Timothy, a second letter to him, talks about how people are gonna be drawn to the church in the last days because their ears are itching. They wanna be pleased themselves. They're selfish and they're looking for, they are arrogant, prideful. And he says this in verse five of 2 Timothy chapter three. He says, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. 
And if that isn't the story of the temple and the story of the fig tree, I don't know what is. Have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And here's, I love it. Here's what Paul tells Timothy, avoid these people. I think the same is true for us today. Churches that have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power, avoid those churches. Avoid those teachings. And I will say this in humility before you. Should we ever become a place that has the appearance of godliness, but denies its power, please avoid us. Find somewhere else. As leadership, we're committed to this, though. We're committed to these things. Prayer is participation in the power of God. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Jesus talks about prayer at the end of Mark chapter 11. Prayer is participation in the power of God. I'm gonna make that point here. Let's go back to verse 22. Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 22. Peter says, look, you did it, you did it. And Jesus says to them, his response is, yes, yeah, have faith in God. So before we get into moving mountains, before we get into look what all these things you can do, what Jesus says is, yes, have faith in me. Have faith in God. Like true faith. Don't just talk about it. Don't show up all the time. Don't quote Bible verses. Have faith in God. Here's the problem with the temple. The temple didn't have faith in God. They had faith in their strategies and their systems. They didn't have faith in God anymore. The problem with the fig tree was that it didn't have sustenance underneath its trappings. And the sustenance for us is faith in God. Do you have faith in God? He says, have faith in God. Verse 23, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. In other words, who has faith, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer. So now Jesus is getting into what he's actually talking about. It should have been a house of prayer. So when you go to prayer, when it is a house of prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, this sounds very prosperity gospel. You gotta understand the whole context of scripture though, which tells us the Lord gives us desires that glorify him. When we pray for things that glorify him first, he can't say no to that. In fact, in the Old Testament, Moses and a number of people come to God and say, hey, I know you're angry. Please don't murder them. Please don't punish them. And the Lord relents and does not punish them. And in Jeremiah, he literally tells Jeremiah, hey, don't come ask me. Don't come ask me for mercy because then I have to give it. Like his character is that he responds to those who pray. But first is his glory. And then second would be the good of others and the good of ourselves. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, which is the greatest miracle of all. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Notice what he says. He says, if you ask for mountains to be thrown into the sea, they will. The primary indicator of your faith is the language of your prayers. So I know we say we are faith-filled people. I wonder if our prayers reflect that though. Like I wonder if we have grown so used to small faith that we've started praying small prayers. And I don't mean that prayer, any type of prayer is insignificant to the Lord. But if you were to journal your prayers and go back to them, would you say that you have faith in God? Or are you just asking him to be your co-pilot? What we pray to God 
reveals our perspective of God. And we gotta pay attention to our prayers because if our prayers have become more consumed with our selfishness or with things that we can accomplish on our own, then I just wonder what we think about God. Because I'd imagine we stopped praying when we realized that we could actually accomplish things without God. What we pray to God reveals our perspective of God. So show me a man of great faith and I will show you a man who prays bold prayers. Just wonder what your prayers sound like. What do my prayers sound like? So I think it would be um, a shame for us to teach on corporate church prayer and then not to actually pray. So I'd like for us to pray this morning. I think for some of us it's gonna be uncomfortable, but I would ask you to lean into it a little bit and just see what the Lord can do. Um, certain postures of prayer. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to do this. You are free to have whatever posture you want to in your prayers. But if you want to get on your knees and pray, you're more than welcome to. If you wanna come to the altar and pray, you can come to the altar and pray. Like this, this is gonna be a time for us of prayer. I'm gonna guide us through five kind of sections or stations of prayer. And it's just gonna walk us through, I think a good way for us to start to build our prayer lives around if you need help in that, okay? So we're just gonna spend some time in prayer together. We're gonna use the idea of these concentric circles. And we're gonna pray for ourselves first. I know that goes against everything you learned in, in children's church. No, no, you gotta pray for Jesus, others, and then yourself. Joy, that, that's what you pray for. I don't. What happens for us though, if we don't get ourselves out of the way first, we're gonna begin to pray prayers that have to get through our garbage before they get to God. Let's get our junk out of the way first. Otherwise, when we get into other things, we're praying selfishly. Let's pray for God. So first, let me just ask you this. Maybe just, if you bow your heads and close your eyes, you can keep your eyes open if you want to. You can turn around and kneel at your chair. Like there's something about the posture of prayer that, of kneeling that, that denotes a dependence and a, a, a humility. This altar is open. If you feel like you need to just come forward and pray, you're more than welcome to. But this first prayer is individual, like it's an individual one. So maybe just, just spend some time quietly in your heart praying to the Lord about the stuff within your own life. And maybe it's time you pray for some bold things about your life and about you. Maybe there's some addictions for you that you've asked God for help with, but you just need to ask him to set you free from it. He's better than help. Here's where you can confess and repent. this next one, I'm gonna ask something of you. Um, if, if you're the head of your household, you are a, a father, maybe you're a single mother, maybe you're, maybe you're a mother whose husband is not following the Lord and you are the head of your spiritual household at this point. I'm gonna ask you to have the courage maybe at this point just to stand. If you're a father or you're the head of your household, go ahead and stand. I wanna I want empower you with something and then I, I just, I'm gonna encourage you in this way. You are the pastor of your home. And if you're not gonna pray for your house, who will? If you're not gonna pray for your kids and your spouse, who's gonna do it for you? 
So this next circle is just, just to pray for our families, our close friends, maybe it's roommates. And heads of household, I, I just wanna challenge you here. Maybe, would you be so bold as to pray this prayer? Just pray out loud for this one. Pray out loud over your family, over the salvation or healing or redemption of, of your kids and your marriage. If you'd be so bold just to pray out loud. Let's, let's pray together. out there looking to, to devour your family, your, your marriage and your kids. We need to be on the front lines asking the Spirit of God to fight. You can be seated when you're ready. Next, we're gonna move to just praying for our church. We want the power of God in our church. So if this is your church home, would you just spend the next few seconds or minute or so just praying for our church? Maybe, maybe you're just visiting because maybe your church hasn't opened yet. And I'll pray for your church. Pray for the wisdom of your leaders. I would say pray for the safety of your pastors, your elders and deacons. Next, we're gonna move out to just pray for our workplaces. Pray for the places you spend 40 plus hours of your week. Have you prayed for them? Have you prayed for your boss? Have you prayed for your employees? Have you prayed for your coworkers? Have you prayed for that business? There's nothing God can do. Those of you this morning, maybe you're not working, but you're in school. Your school is your place of employment. Would you pray for your schools and your teachers and the administrators, your classmates? This might be the year God's gonna have you share the gospel with your best friend. Finally, let's just pray for our community. Pray for Ola, pray for McDonough, pray for Covington and Conyers, pray for Jackson and Stockbridge. Whatever your community is, your neighborhood. before you as a church, a gathering of called out ones, called out for the mission of advancing the gospel. God, we repent and we confess that there are times that we've tried to do it on our own. And um, 
we've thought individually and corporately, maybe if certain strategies or things would make a difference and God, we've neglected your power and replaced our self-sufficiency. So God, would you um, accept our confession? Would you forgive us? And then God, would, would you birth within us a passion for you and a desire to come before you and pray and beg for you to intercede. God, we humbly confess that we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to do this on our own. What you've called us to feels too big. We need you. For people in our church, God, who just need a special closeness to you, I pray you would meet them in it even now in these moments that you would make yourself known to them. You would draw back to their memory things that you've said in your word, things that they've experienced in the church, uh, that they would know it and they would feel it. For people in our church who need to be healed, God, we pray for the great physician to heal, whether that be through the hands of skilled doctors or through a miraculous intervention. God, we pray that you would, that you would be glorified in that way. For people this morning who are struggling with the chains and the bondage of some sort of addiction to some sort of sin or slavery, this could be the day of their salvation. This could be the day of, of, of freedom. God, would you set them free? Give them the courage to confess and repent and walk in light. Set them free this morning. God, for the person in the room this morning who needs to come know you, who is lost, on their way to eternal hell. God, would you do what you tell us in your word that you do? Would you breathe life into them and call them to your own? The effectual calling of the spirit, would you enact that now that they would come to follow you? And if that's you this morning, if that's you and you, maybe you have leaves but no, no fruits, it's because you don't actually know Jesus and you've been trying to make daddy happy or mama happy or your girlfriend happy, but the truth is there's, there's no sustenance under it and you're exhausted. Here's what I would say to you. The same, the same God who has the power to heal has the greater power to save and he wants to save you this morning. And what you have to do is simply confess that you are a sinner in need of a savior and that you believe there's a God in heaven who loves you so much that he gave the ultimate sacrifice for your sin and that you want that and you want that to be the defining story of your life and you're gonna do your best to walk in that new life. And if that's you this morning, if that's you praying salvation, asking the Lord to save the greatest miracle of all, just by means of confession that we can walk with you, would you, would you just raise your hand and let us know, yeah, that, I gave my life to the Lord. I, I wanna follow him for the first time. Praise the Lord. Salvation has come to his house today, church. Praise the Lord. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we wrap up, I just wanna draw our attention back to something that's interesting to me. In Acts chapter one, verse 14, before the Pentecost, before Acts 2.42, before all of that happened, I want you to see what the people were doing. They were in the upper room and with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer, which tells us this, we might be at the end of our series, but we've only just begun. Because prayer seems to be the beginning of the move of God and it seems to be the result of the move of God, which means at the beginning and the end, there's always the middle over and over and over again. So listen to this church, what you've just done is you've asked God to keep moving. So then we have to keep going with him. 
the prayers of the church unleash the power of God. We have unleashed the power of God in our church, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community this morning. May we have eyes to see it as we leave this place. God is up to something because he is always up to something. It's not new. He's always moving, always working. God, again, we thank you for this morning. We give this day to you. We give our church to you. We give our hearts to you. May this be, uh, may we be fruitful. Take away our leaves if we don't have any fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Share a couple of things with you and, um, and you'll be dismissed. Uh, first is Wednesday night. We continue with our Wednesday nights. So if you want to RSVP for dinner, I think it's lasagna this week. So RSVP for that online on our website. You can RSVP for dinner. It starts at 5.30. Then we have Bible study at seven o'clock. Discipleship groups are meeting. Um, student ministries, middle school and high school start at 6.30. There's programming for our preschoolers and elementary kids as well. So we just invite you to come out and be a part of that. If you would, there are small groups that meet every week. If you have questions about Wednesday night or small group, or if you have given your life to Jesus this morning, or if you have questions about prayer, if you need someone to pray for you, Jeff's gonna be over here in the gathering place. I know Greg is there, our student pastor. Daryl's over there as well. I'm here, Joel's here, Kyle's here. If you need to, Cody is somewhere. Cody's also here. If you need, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you and pray for you. Um, as we continue moving forward, we're gonna start a new series next week uh, through the book of Ephesians. We're gonna study the letter to the Ephesians starting next week. It's gonna be a number of weeks. It will take us all the way to our Christmas series. So just be ready for that. We're gonna study together. I would encourage you to begin reading the book of Ephesians. Just Maybe just spend the, the, the fall reading Ephesians. Totally fine to read the same passage over and over again. We're gonna study that. We're gonna start that next week. I'm excited about it. Be looking um, this week through email and social media, ways that you can be praying as a church this week. We wanna put that into practice as well. If you would stand, I'll give you a benediction and we'll be dismissed. Thank you again for being part of this, part of our church, part of this worship this morning. We pray that the Lord has met you in a new way. Again, as we walk out after hearing a series on prayer, we all have ideas of how we're gonna pray better tomorrow. I don't, I just, I hope we don't do that. I hope we don't pray better. I hope we do this. I hope what John tells, what Jesus tells us in John, that from the fullness of God, we have all received grace upon grace. Your prayers can be through grace. You may go, you are dismissed in grace.